Hello and welcome to this week's roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On the podcast this week, the shameful ending of Britain and America's involvement in Afghanistan leaves thousands of Afghans who assisted us trapped in the country at the mercy of the Taliban. Is there anything we can do to help now that our troops have left? How is the government handling an influx of refugees that it really should have expected? And what will this mortifying episode do to the relationship between the military and political establishments? Plus, the tyranny of TripAdvisor. As tourist bodies ask travellers to be kind in their dealings with holiday personnel, has lockdown made us more impatient, more demanding and more unreasonable? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. If you are enjoying them, then you can help to spread the word by forwarding the link to this show to three like-minded friends. We're running a spread the word campaign and it's a great way to bring us to the attention of more people. It's really easy. There's a share button in your app, so why not do it right now? Now, let's meet the panel. First up, welcome back to the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Sarhan. Hello, Yasmin. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Glad to hear it. Not bad, not bad. So it's now been nearly nine months since the first people received their COVID jabs and studies are showing that the effectiveness of vaccines is starting to wear off. The government is now planning a booster programme for September. Do you think that is the right approach? So from a health perspective, absolutely. I mean, as you just said, we know that while vaccines are very effective when it comes to preventing serious illness and hospitalization, that we also know that the immunity conferred by them is wanes over time against the Delta variant in particular. It's for this reason that scientists in Israel and the US and here in Britain and elsewhere have been looking at the option of effectively giving people a boost in protection. Um, but from a broader global health perspective, I would argue actually that it's not that great. Um, in fact, one epidemiologist I spoke to um, a couple of weeks ago said it was crazy. Um, and that's because the majority of the global population is still waiting on their first and second doses. Um, indeed, less than 1% of people in low-income countries are fully vaccinated, which is why the World Health Organization likened this to effectively giving life jackets to people who already have them while leaving the rest of the world to drown. Also back on the bunker, hell is a journalist and author, Marie Lacons. Hello, Marie. Hello. Now, the huge political event of the weekend, seismic, some would say, was that video of Michael Gove uh, hitting the <laughs> dance floor of uh, Aberdeen for some quality dad dancing. But firstly, as a, a long-time raver yourself, what, what did you make of his moves? So I I couldn't actually watch the entire video in one go. It was kind of like staring at the sun. It was just so powerful. <laughs> that I just could only do really a few seconds at a time. So I'm not really sure. I think it was just, yeah, as I said, too, too powerful is how I would describe his moves. So Gove went to the, the club night pipe, which is described as an unpredictable mix of the most high energy UK and global club music scenes, where he appeared to be doing Big Fish, Little Fish cardboard box to some tech house. And he was still at it at two, half past two in the morning. This is the fa- my favourite thing that Michael Gove has ever done. It's the only reason I've ever had to like him. Um, and people did seem to quite like it, didn't they? They seemed to be quite impressed for change by Michael Gove. Yeah, no, I actually really enjoyed the reaction because I think the story came out, so I think it was the Daily Record. Mm. And, you know, and at first, the first of like, you know, maybe hour or so was, you know, people doing the usual thing of just like straight out of the bat, like, you know, just mocking him and being quite mean and stuff. And then actually quite quickly, I think people were like, actually, we're fine with this. Sorry, this was a reflexive thing that we did. Turns out this is just quite funny and like good for him. Um, yeah. yeah, no, so I think yeah, it, it was... I would say oddly, oddly heartening uh, the reaction to yeah everyone going. It has been a shit eighteen months for absolutely everyone, up to and including Michael Gove. So like, fine if he wants to go dancing by himself, then let him. I can see uh, kitchens being stenciled with the words "dance like you're Michael Gove" and everyone's watching in the future. 
Completing the panel this week, back from a well-deserved holiday in Portugal, it's former Foreign Office diplomat Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hello. So, obviously, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan in, in great detail in a moment, but um, you can actually give us an update on your friend uh, that you spoke to for a bunker special last week. Is, is that right? That is right, yes. So, uh, when we spoke, um, he was in hiding in Kabul, and I'm sure some of the listeners heard that episode, uh, very unsure about what was going to happen. Um, about a week after that conversation, maybe it was five days, I think, he managed to get onto one of the last UK evacuation flights out. And he's now going through the uh, rather boring process of quarantine in a hotel near Heathrow Airport. I'm sure he'd far rather be bored than stuck in Kabul. I mean, you've been spending quite a lot of time getting other people out as well. What can you tell us about this? Well, so what's been going on is basically in the light of what is an extraordinary failure by governments all over the world, including our own, to get people out of Afghanistan, an amazing global network of volunteers has popped up to take the strain. So we're talking people who used to work in Afghanistan, former soldiers, people with intelligence backgrounds, others who've got security or other useful skills. Um, And it's an extraordinary pipeline. Literally thousands of people are being got out, partly on flights and some of them overland, um, dodging Taliban checkpoints and so on. And the work is ongoing. I've, I've been spending a lot of today um, you know, exchanging messages with people in different places to, to continue doing this stuff. So this will be heavily dependent on things like encrypted communications, WhatsApp and, 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 and Telegram, things like that. Are they still functional within Afghanistan? I've got to confess, I don't know an awful lot about internet service providers in Afghanistan. You're forgiven for not knowing uh, much about it. But actually, in Afghanistan, mobile phone networks are pretty reliable. One of the things, even as back in 2010, uh, one of the few sectors of the economy that could operate basically without interruption, was mobile phones because Taliban needed them just as much as everyone else. So in fact, even in areas under Taliban control, the mobile phone companies knew who to speak to if they needed to go and repair a mast and that kind of thing. So yeah, so a lot of it is about using all the apps that people use in this country, WhatsApp, Signal and so on, sharing information such as where there are particularly bad checkpoints or where there's known to be a Taliban unit that are particularly aggressive or particularly behaving in a certain way so basically you know that's that that's what's going on and um it's a remarkable example of you know what kind of civil society can achieve uh, when they work together so let's go into that aftermath of Britain and the US's withdrawal from Afghanistan. The final British flight left Kabul on Saturday morning, bringing to an end the UK's 20-year military involvement in Afghanistan. More than 15,000 people have been evacuated by the UK since August the 14th, and attention is now turning to how we deal with refugees created by the Taliban takeover. In Whitehall, the blame game began as ministers and officials accused the Foreign Office of negligence, with something between seven and 9,000 people who could have been saved now left in Afghanistan at the mercy of the Taliban. Arthur... As somebody with a long career in the Foreign Office and who's worked in Afghanistan, what were you making of the governmental evacuation efforts in the past couple of weeks? Well, I would say that whilst the evacuation was going on, they did a fantastic job. You had people deployed on the ground. The ambassador made sure that he only came out on the last flight. They had, in some cases, uh, special forces and other commandos going out into the town to pick people up. So they did a brilliant job, but they started too late and they finished too early. Now, I'm not going to say that you can specifically blame Britain or this government for that, because ultimately, at a point when the control of the airport has been handed over uh, to effectively a hostile power, the Taliban, it's unreasonable to expect 
a single country to be able to operate some kind of air evacuation and airlift like that. So I think we have to say that the the job as it was carried out was carried out brilliantly, but the wider context and, and the sort of decision-making behind it w- was pretty awful. If you're a government and you have, as Britain does, some four to 900 people who work directly with you and a further seven to 9,000 with looser links to Britain in the country, aid workers, you know, sports teams, journalists, lo- lots of, of women. What kind of options does a government have? Are there official routes to get people out? Well, here's the thing. The Taliban will say publicly that they want the airport to return to normal operations. There's been talk about Turkey and Qatar, who are the two sort of international countries that appear to have the best connections with the Taliban whilst also having reasonable relations uh, you know, with the wider world. Uh, there's talk of those countries taking some kind of role, whether it's managing the airport, whether it's a Turkish military offering some kind of security. So in theory, it's perfectly possible that Turkish Airlines, Qatar Airways, very you know, credible, uh, high, high reputation carriers will be able to fly in and out of Kabul. The issue is, can a person who feels unsafe in Afghanistan travel to that airport and leave the country uh, in a straightforward manner? And of course, the answer is almost certainly not. There are hundreds of people. Just today, I've been dealing with a case of a British interpreter who worked for the British military, also worked the American military, was accepted onto the uh, British uh, visa program earlier this year. And then in July, the Home Office rejected that application. No reason was given. Uh, There is absolutely no reason to believe that this person is any kind of risk. On the contrary, this person risked his life in numerous operations uh, over the years. That person is now hunkering down in a place I'm not going to name, taking literally small arms fire onto, onto the home where he lives with his seven children. So these are the sorts of situations that are happening because of the Home Office making arbitrary decisions for reasons that they're not even prepared to publicise. Boris Johnson has hinted at the idea of diplomatic recognition for the Taliban if they protect women's rights and let people left behind have safe passage. Is this remotely likely? Is it a good move? Well, the difficulty is one could take the approach where you say, we will isolate the Taliban, we will never recognise them, We will never release any of the funds or the aid or the frozen assets or whatever. And then you've got one of the world's poorest countries where people people literally live at risk of starvation at certain times of year and in certain areas with lack of access to medical care and so on. I don't think you can take on trust any kind of assurances. We keep hearing Taliban spokesman says we will allow women to continue working. We will not uh, prevent people from leaving the country. But we know there have been repeated cases already of people being, you know, basically summarily executed simply because they don't fit the Taliban's narrow understanding of how they should behave um, or because of, you know, past activities they've undertaken. So, you know, what the Taliban wants is they want the international community not to be looking too closely and then they can start their long culture war which is to you know, turn the country into an extremely conservative, uh, sort of backward-looking place. The one thing we mustn't forget, though, is that there are plenty of people in Afghanistan who also want this, who are not members of the Taliban, but who, who actually adhere to that worldview. So it's not, this is not a, a simple situation. You know, Afghanistan is incredibly divided, lots of 
different groups, different ethnicities, different uh, religious and cultural traditions. Yasmin, the US has obviously completed its evacuation of personnel from, from Afghanistan. The attacks on Biden for his decisions are intensifying from the Republicans, even though this was Trump's deal. Are these attacks getting traction on Biden? Is it starting to stick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, bipartisan consensus, as you would imagine, is a rarity in Washington these days. But it it really does seem like the pushback against how the withdrawal was handled has been pretty intense on both sides of the aisle. You know, in fact, I I saw a recent poll that said that, you know, fewer than four in 10 Americans approved of Biden's handling of the situation. Um, And, you know, we we also saw headlines like the the terrorist attack on on the Kabul airport with the suicide bomber. I think that was described in some headlines as the darkest day of Biden's presidency. You know, whether this has a long term impact on it, I'm not sure. You know, he's still popular when it comes to his response to the COVID pandemic, for example. But I mean, certainly, I think any sort of honeymoon he was enjoying is now officially over for sure. The idea that this is somehow Biden's thing generated entirely by himself from nowhere seems to be a key attack line from whatever's left of the the old school Republican leadership. But the new school Republican leadership is, is pursuing it as well. I know it's very difficult to say from your vantage point, but are people taking it as Biden's plan and Biden's plan alone? I mean, it's hard to gauge from like kind of a public opinion standpoint. I think broadly people, as I said, were kind of opposed to how it was handled. But I think it's worth remembering that before this all went down and before the withdrawal began, Americans, by and large, Republican and Democrat, widely supported withdrawing from Afghanistan. It was one of those rare points of agreement. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think critically minded Americans will recognize that, you know, what happened, even though obviously the buck stops at the commander in chief, who is Biden at the moment, as you mentioned, it was President Trump who who announced the decision for the withdrawal and, you know, chose a date after his first term. Um, and, you know, you, you have three other uh, presidential administrations that kind of own what has been two decades of failure and bad decisions on on the part of, you know, U.S. and political and military leaders. So certainly it, it is not Biden's fault, but I think we can also recognize that as the president right now, he is going to understandably be like facing the brunt of the questions and admittedly some of the blame. And I think we've, we've, we've heard him in some instances acknowledge that the buck stops with him, but in other instances kind of, you know, try to remind people that actually it was Trump who, who decided to do this. Um, and that was a position that he chose to carry. Um, he did not want to pass this on to the next president. Marie, you're a, you're a Westminster reporter, and apart from Parliament being recalled, Westminster has been pretty quiet over the summer. Are you getting any kind of a sense of the sort of post-Afghanistan political environment that's going to re-emerge when Parliament returns in September? Because it, you know, we're going to talk about this in a, in, a, in a few minutes, but it does seem that you know a large chunk of the Conservative Party were horrified at what's happened. Oh, absolutely. And I think MPs across the board right now are just mostly exhausted and incredibly depressed because I think most of the offices have been spending the past few weeks trying to get, you know, their constituents, some of you know, the relatives or colleagues of their constituents out of Afghanistan. And especially I think the I think it was an observer story um a few days ago saying that actually a lot of the emails, uh, like urgent, urgent emails sent by MPs' offices to the Foreign Office about people needing to leave Afghanistan were not even opened by the Foreign Office by the time the operation ended. Um, and I think you saw on Twitter, you know, this kind of avalanche of anger and and despair, I think, from, you know, backbenchers and from even like quite prominent so like Labour MPs, etc., just saying, 
we've basically not slept the past two weeks. You know, me and my staff have not slept, just trying to do whatever we could to get those people out. And apparently the Foreign Office could not even open our emails. So I think that, that that's going to be the main thing. I suspect that is going to be a major, major issue once Parliament comes back next week, because, again, there's just a sense of c- complete fury. Yeah, because it it's not that it even speaks to, you know, misguided competence. It just speaks to total lack of interest. You know, it's, it's not that they've chosen a course of action and it was the wrong course of action. They simply haven't done anything. One of the more embarrassing sideshows from the whole episode was the pen farthing thing where 200 animals were seemingly brought home, possibly in place of human beings that, that could have been saved. What's your take on that? Because this, this seemed to bring out the most sentimental side of the British political character. I am so angry and I'm... I am someone, I love dogs so much. I am genuinely just like known, I think, in my neighbourhood as a local dog fiend. Um, and yet, but it, it, like, this entire story has made me so angry. That's so unbelievably angry. It's been completely nonsensical and inhuman as well. And I think I will say as well, I reckon that quite a lot of people in Westminster definitely feel the same way. So that's been quite interesting, I think, seeing the gap between, between again, the kind of Westminster bubble and and the rest of the country, I suppose. But I think privately, at least quite a lot of politicians and people have been absolutely furious as well and absolutely hate sort of like pen farthing and his stupid animals. Um, no, I, I think I genuinely even find it hard to talk about because my main feeling is just, again, complete like, apoplectic fury. Arthur, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this in particular, but as someone who served in Hellmand, what did you make of the pen farthing episode? It seemed to be obviously a whole load of conflicting information comes out the argument that it's a charter plane and therefore places are not being taken away from human beings humans could have traveled on that plane too but evidently didn't what did you think i mean was this an and also clearly british military personnel were diverted from parts of their duties to facilitate this what what did you what was your take on it well certainly a lot of time and resource was spent by people who had what appeared to be much more important and pressing matters to deal with a load of pets. And that is just inexplicable. Uh, But I think what I also found sort of slightly hideous was the way in which a lot of kind of political Twitter was frantically tweeting about pen farthing. So it then became the story. It was sort of, it was, you know, the new alpaca story. And And it takes away, you know, the same people tweeting this stuff we're taking away attention from the unbelievable human tragedy, you know, which which has been unfolding in Afghanistan. I mean, something that struck me, two Brits died, or maybe it was three, in, in the bombing at Kabul airport. No one's talked about them at all, as far as I'm aware. I haven't seen any reporting on them. Who are they? What's their story? You know, it's a tragedy. We should care. But we're, we've got lots of information about dogs and cats flying around. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of stories, but not, but not a great deal compared to this extremely sort of sentimental tale. But I mean, I, it, it just strikes me as like, you know, this is what you get when you have a government that's primarily interested in popularity and optics. And yeah. that. If I can interrupt, I, I wonder, because I've sort of been thinking about this, um, and Arthur, I completely agree with your point, and I know like, I've been guilty of it as well. But I wonder if it may be as well that, you know, it, it's such a, A, it's all, you know, such a complex story because, you know, I, for example, as a layperson would not be able to tell you, you know, what should have been done better. B, is just so horribly sad at the entire situation. 
Um, and, and so I feel like having something that was so straightforward and so obviously dumb, I think managed to make a lot of people focus in a way of saying, actually, I want to have a lot of feelings about this, but I don't really know what feelings to have or I feel completely powerless. And I think having this one thing, like, it, it became the focal point, I think, because it was so easy to be like, okay, this is obviously wrong. Actually, this is quite easy because this is so obviously the wrong thing to do. So I, I, I wonder if it wasn't, yeah, the, the quite human reaction of saying, I don't know how to deal with this massive thing, so I'm just going to have to focus on this small quite simple thing. Well, now that the troops have gone, the question is, what happens to those Afghan refugees arriving in the UK? What are we doing for them? And is it enough? We spoke to a key campaigner for migrants' rights to find out. My name is Bella Sankey, and I'm the director of Detention Action. The government has recently announced a new resettlement scheme and they've said that over the course of five years, they'll be accepting 20,000 Afghan refugees. They've estimated that they'll be uh, receiving around 5,000 Afghan refugees in the first year. There's also a separate programme um, that has been designed for people that have assisted the UK in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And it's under that scheme that we're currently seeing uh, or have been seeing people being effectively evacuated from Afghanistan over the past week or more. There are lots of holes in what the government is doing, and I don't think it's unfair to say that the government is basically doing the kind of minimum that they think they can get away with in terms of responding to this crisis, but not going over and above really a sort of bare, a bare minimum response and a bare minimum policy. In terms of context, it's incredibly important to keep in mind that over the past two decades, the UK has forcibly returned thousands of people to Afghanistan. And that's going to include people that came to the UK as unaccompanied refugee children. We have clients who fled the Taliban and came to the UK uh, when they were you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. We also have worked with LGBTQI people who have fled Afghanistan in, in this period and who have been subjected to detention and forced removal. It was only until literally two weeks ago that the government was still actively detaining and seeking to remove Afghans in the UK. So they've tried to do a kind of immediate U-turn and to say that they're now in the business of supporting Afghans to reach safety but we still have Afghan clients in detention. And when it comes to the situation of the thousands of Afghan people that are in the UK that have either claimed asylum and haven't had their cases yet determined or who have been refused asylum and protection claims, the government isn't currently saying that they are going to grant those applications and that they're going to give people uh, leave to remain in the UK what they're doing, what they're trying to do is to just pause all of those cases, effectively leaving people in an indefinite limbo, unable to properly move on with their lives, still um, understandably in great fear of being returned to Afghanistan. So one of the first really easy and quick things that the government could do is release Afghan people from immigration detention, grant people that are in the UK leave to remain here um, on a long-term basis uh, and give people that security and that peace of mind that they so desperately need. 
Arthur, as Bella alluded to, we still have Afghan citizens in detention centres who could be deported back to Afghanistan. If the government claims to understand their situation, why is it not providing them with the right to stay? Well, I have to say on this, I am reasonably certain that this is just a case of policy needing to catch up with the news. I may be wrong, but I cannot believe that we're going to see deportation flights to Taliban Afghanistan, you know, in the next week, month, or whatever. Even Priti Patel, I don't think, would be able to carry that one off without, um, you know, just causing unbelievable uh, uproar. But what we don't know is, would they give them the right to stay, people who have been, um, you know, slated for deportation? Or are they going to try and come up with some ridiculous deal where they send them off to a another third country where they've, they've cut some weird deal or or an island in the Atlantic or whatever version of pretty Patel weirdness that, that might be up our sleeve. Belasanki says we're doing the minimum and we're not going over and above. What do you think Britain ought to be doing? I mean, we've seen a strange kind of very uneven response around the country. Many local authorities have, have, have said this is our duty and welcomed refugees. Many people from parts perhaps of the political spectrum you would not expect have said, yes, it is our duty to, to help people. Where is the government falling short, do you think? There seems to be one a genuine willingness to take in Afghan refugees, as you say, across the political spectrum. And I do wonder whether actually the whole immigration debate has moved on from the awful, toxic days of, of 2016. And, and, and we as, you know, open-minded liberal people shouldn't sort of drag people back to that time. And then, you know, the, the, the basic question is, you've just got to do it properly. You, you've got to have, be willing to take serious numbers that actually put a dent into the overall challenge and not just come up with silly, eye-catching publicity stunts. Like I saw reported the idea that, you know, there'll be a new unit of the army, which is a bit like the Gurkhas made up of Afghan veterans who obviously can't go back to Afghanistan. Well, that's all very well. Fine, if you want to do that, do that. But that's not actually dealing with the core issue, which is going to be thousands and thousands of refugees most of whom will end up in Pakistan because it's the nearest country that they're able to reach. And and what is their on, ongoing, what does their future hold? Marie, I'm going to ask you to speak on behalf of all of France again. What's France's position on Afghan refugees? How many is France taking? Is there appetite among French people to kind of fulfil an obligation, as it were? I think yes and no. So it's because obviously we're quite decentralised. And I know actually, and that really touched me because when I was in France in my hometown, which has historically always been quite liberal and quite left-wing, um, there were signs saying, you know, not is waiting for the refugees and not, you know, wel- welcomes the refugees, which is lovely. But, you know, so I think we've welcomed around 3,000 refugees already, but mostly, again, so it's really the mayors of certain cities and towns saying, you know, we can take X amount, etc. So it's mostly been, I think, left-wing and kind of Green Party mayors saying, you know, bring them in, including, actually, I was really happy to read about 50, I think, uh, Afghan families or people in this actually like very small village on the seaside near Brittany, which feels like a really really nice or like heartwarming movie to be made but yeah but but overall I would say kind of similar to Britain in that I think it's not been as horrific and you know as that anti-migrant anti-refugee as it's been in the past but also it remains quite a fraught topic. Yasmin the United States is a country of uh, migrants and immigrants anyway what what, what has your sense been of what people in the US are thinking about the Afghan refugee situation? Perhaps unsurprisingly, there's been quite a lot of pushback, uh, particularly among Republicans when it, when it comes to accepting refugees, um, albeit at least a few weeks ago with one glaring exception, and that was Donald Trump. Um, a couple of weeks ago, he was basically giving 
like a tacit endorsement of accepting refugees. Um, he said, like, can, can anyone even imagine taking out our military before evacuating civilians and others who have been good to our country and who should be allowed to seek refuge? Um, now, I, I think he's kind of pivoted away from that as, as Republicans have increasingly grown louder and louder when it comes to opposing refugees settling in the U.S. And I've, I've certainly seen some arguments that like, well, yes, Trump supports um, them being able to resettle. They did, he didn't say where they should be resettling. So um, I think there, there's definitely uh, the U.S. is, I think, bracing for a fight between Democrats and Republicans um, over, you know, whose responsibility it is to take in Afghan refugees. Uh, but since August 14th, I think the U.S. has, according to the White House anyway, the U.S. has helped more than 114,000 people evacuate Afghanistan, of which I think about 5,000 were Americans. So, um, you know, I've, I've spoken with, with Afghan refugees who are in their in their quarantine right now who are waiting um, to obviously to kind of find out where they're going. Because I think for, for a lot of people, and this is both in the U.S., but also around the world, you know, they're in quarantine, they're in these temporary places, but they still don't know where they're going to end up. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Does it resonate in any way with, you know, I mean, I can dimly remember the, the Vietnamese refugees and, and the boat people of the late 70s and the early 80s. Is, is, is there any connection being made with that kind of uh, wave of, of refugees? Oh, totally. It does. Yeah. In fact, my colleague, um, George Packer, had a great piece. I want to say back in April, um, he talked about how as a first term senator, Biden was actually an outspoken opponent of using American money and risking American lives to rescue the tens of thousands of South Vietnamese who had basically risked their lives to, to help the Americans. Um, and Packard argued that in Afghanistan, Biden could redeem that mistake by recognizing the moral obligation that the U.S. has to help Afghans who helped us. Um, and, and I think you could argue that, you know, even if obviously the, the withdrawal did not no one, I think, could argue that the withdrawal happened in, in, in a way that, that could be considered good. And, and, and obviously, there are so many people, as you mentioned, who have been left behind. But I, I think one could argue that given the number of Afghan refugees that the U.S. has evacuated so far, that Biden kind of has done that. That said, um, you know, obviously, there, there are scores of people that still need to be helped, uh, and not just Americans, but vulnerable Afghans who, you know, were kind of just counting on the Taliban, um, I think, as Arthur was saying before, to keep its promise uh, to say that people can leave. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there's more to be done. But, but I think we could, we could say that he, he has done that. Big historical events tend to rock and reset the relationship between governments and their military, with the latter often unhappy at having to carry the can for the former's decisions, be it Vietnam for the United States, Suez for the UK, or Algeria for France. A major moment of humiliation can reverberate for decades, and in some countries, like the US, the military is far more central to national life than in others. Um, Yasmin, you know, whenever I pass through any American airport, I'll, I see people in fatigues traveling from one place to another. The military is saluted at sporting events. Former soldiers seem to get discounts everywhere. Why does the military play such an outsized role in U.S. politics and in civil society? So, I mean, those are all true things. I mean, I think it does and I think it doesn't. I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, like politically and, and nationally, um, the U.S. holds the military in very high regard. But But the fact of the matter is that, you know, I think the number of active duty personnel in the country is 1.3 million. So that's mm -hmm. less than 1% of the country's population. So I, I guess what I would say is that, well, yes, you know, we, we do have this great regard and respect for the military. And I think that, you know, that goes for like both sides of the aisle. You know, I, I think on a bipartisan basis, people are very supportive of the military, but I don't necessarily think that people 
are close to it or understand it. Like as an American who grew up nowhere near army bases, I do hmm. not know very, I know a handful of people who are like, who serve in, in some section of, of the, of the armed forces currently. Um, you know, I don't know anything about what their lives are like. I think there's a bit of a disconnect in that respect. And I don't think that was always the case. You know, my, my colleague, James Fallows had, had a good piece on this from a while back, but, you know, he talked about how in, in the decade after World War II, you know, American families had at least one member in uniform. So most Americans were kind of fa- familiar enough with the institution to respect it, while also being like sharply aware of its shortcomings. And and I don't necessarily think that's the case anymore. But the phrase, you know, this is another Vietnam, this is another Vietnam, this is worse than Vietnam, is being bandied around and not, not entirely by people who just want to hurt Joe Biden. I mean, the psychological effects of Vietnam were enormous. Even on this side of the Atlantic, we could see the extent to which it re- you know, the army was remade on the basis of, of, of Vietnam. It's impossible to say, I suppose, just like a week after the, the fall of Kabul, is there going to be any long-term effects? But is there any inkling that there might be? Um, I mean, when it comes to the military itself, I don't think Americans, by and large, know enough about the military to apply the same level of like scrutiny and public skepticism mm. that we might apply to other US institutions. A lot of it is going to come down to how, you know, Biden being the commander in chief, how he handled it, how kind of military leaders handled it. And I'm sure at, at some point there there will be, you know, we've kind of already started this reckoning and, and these historical comparisons that you mentioned. I'm sure in the weeks and months to come, um, that's something that's probably going to continue. I would imagine Biden would want nothing more than just move on to the next thing. Um, it, it remains to be seen. I, I think the real test will to be see how long this remains a subject line in the U.S. and beyond just the refugee argument and you know whatever Republicans and Democrats choose to make of it. I'd be keen to kind of see because you know this is really sort of absorbed all the oxygen in a way, understandably so, like everyone's attention has been on it. And I, and I think perhaps, you know, for, for many Americans who didn't care much about Afghanistan, these last few weeks have been sort of the moment where you'd be like, wow, actually, this is, you know, this is the culmination of two decades, yada, yada. But like, um, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of waiting to see, does that last? And, and if it doesn't, then I wouldn't see why there would be any change. Arthur, um, as Yasmin's just uh, just mentioned, the, uh, the very powerful criticism in Parliament uh, of the government from MPs who had served in Afghanistan had themselves had military connections really cut through. That sort of criticism is especially effective from people with first-hand experience. Do, do you think it, it goes to public opinion? I mean, there's always been a strong our boys constituency in this country. Yeah, I think so. I think an important point, which is probably the case both in the US and the UK, is that You've got a generation who've just started coming into politics who've actually served in much more kind of kinetic wars than their predecessors. So it's not that there weren't soldiers before, but basically during the Cold War, most soldiers, if they were British, they would do tours in Northern Ireland and they'd spend a bit of time in Germany uh, or maybe Cyprus, whereas it's a completely different situation if you're a veteran of Helmand province or if you were in the initial invasion of Iraq, really quite serious uh, war fighting situation. So I think the big difference is that you've got men in their 40s and some women, of course, who have come through that experience. And so when they talk about the military and warfare, they're, they're able to talk to people who are 20, 30 years older than, than them who actually have no experience of it. And I think the public see that and they see it for something that is quite authentic, even if the individual politics, you know, right, left politics, you know, they may or may not agree with them. Marie, you cover Parliament. The ex-soldiers often stand out. Military bearing is 
pretty conspicuous on the benches. The soldiers who were often the backbone of the Tory party, people like Turgon Hatt and Johnny Mercer, their criticism has been pretty damning. What do you think it's doing to the Tory party at the moment? That's a really good question, actually. So I think, because it's weirdly, we often talk about the professionalisation of the Parliamentary Labour Party of saying, you know, like what once upon a time it was all these union men and, you know, kind of men who'd been going down the mines, etc. But we didn't really talk about the fact that, yeah, as you said, you know, the Conservative Party, the Parliamentary Party, at least, used to have a lot of soldiers in it and a lot of people who did not come from a Westminster background originally. So I think I, I think it's basically symptomatic of a wider issue with politics. And again, you know, that concerns all parties, but it's, hmm, but it, it, it is kind of, yeah, one of those that I think had been happening bit by bit, so hadn't really been noticed. It'll be interesting to see if going forward, I think that has an effect on uh, selection or on the way that obviously, you know, CCHU kind of looks at, you know, the sorts of people they want to become the next generation of Conservative MPs. I think, yeah, it's basically, I'm not sure anything's going to really happen right now, but I wonder if it'll have an effect on the next crop, um, the next generation of MPs. We in Britain tend to think that France still has military service. Uh, what is the, what's the actual situation, Marie? Um, well, actually, so sort of yes and no. So I think uh, we ended up with a really weird middle ground between having one and not having one. So technically, we have military service that is completely compulsory and very serious, but it lasts for one day. Um, <laughs> so you have to do it as sort of like 16 or 17. And you go into your like nearer, nearest sort of like army base. You get a, a very official letter and then you have to go on a certain date, your nearest army base or whatever. Um, and so, so my confession is that I actually never did it. But um, basically, you sort of go in and I think you just watch a bunch of like PowerPoints about how good the army is. And also, crucially, for lunch, you eat chicken and chips, which I know because every single French person I know my age who did this had chicken and chips and it kind of became a joke. But no, but more seriously, you know, you do really have to do it. I didn't do it because I moved to Britain when I was 17 um, and I'd been procrastinating on anyway. Oh, yeah, no, no. They found me in Britain. I got a letter about a year or two years in because at first I was like, you know, I, don't, I can't be bothered doing this. They found me and they were like, you have to do this. Actually, turns out, you know, you can do it in Britain. But by that point, I was like, actually, I, I just really don't want to. But 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 sincerely, you know, I, I probably would have trouble doing certain things in France if I went back to live there because I did not do that one day and I, I did not eat my chicken and chips um, with the army. So, so yeah, so that's kind of where we stand on that, which is, you know, just normal country doing normal things. And that's why you can't be the president of France. <laughs> yeah, the, the only reason, really. The only reason. Arthur, just, just finally, just to wrap this bit up, I mean, the, the army is seldom blamed directly for military setbacks and it you know its popularity uh, in the country remains high but the, the the writer simon Aiken pointed out that you know the army did push for a greater role in iraq and afghanistan and then blamed politicians for overstretching it uh, there were kind of systematic failures and then everybody involved was was promoted Aiken quotes an officer as saying the military is indemnified from criticism due to public support and maybe even public sentimentality it, is that true in your experience yes that is correct if I think back to my time in Helmand in 2010, particularly in Sangin at that time, there were very high casualties. And what you saw in, back in the UK was this kind of mixture of sentimentality and understandable public grief. You remember the Wooten Bassett parades as those coffins came home. But what's interesting is if you talked to the Royal Marines up there in Sangin, as I did, they saw it as one of the most challenging and therefore rewarding professional assignments they could possibly have because they were literally in the most dangerous sort of active conflict zone on planet Earth. And if you're in the Royal Marines, 
that's what you sign up for. So the public often doesn't understand how the military operate. But I think there's another point here, which is actually specifically, yes, the military are often able to blame shift to politicians. The fact is that the British mission to Helmand was in the origin largely driven by the army. And why was it driven by the army? Because the army had failed in Basra and they were desperate to have a new mission that they could show the Americans that they could sort of redeem their reputation. Now, we all know how it worked out. It didn't work. It was a failure again. But that was the the origin story of Britain's ill-fated mission to Helmand. Now, I'm not excusing politicians. Of course, it's politicians' job, along with civil servants and the machinery of government, to intelligently you know, assess these sorts of decisions. But actually, certainly the military leadership, or not, not the operational commanders, but the military leadership should take a lot of the blame for the decision. If you look at the decision-making 2006, 7, and 8, where the British surged into Helmand and then sort of got stuck in a quagmire of their own making, the military leaders should take, should take responsibility for that. Finally, oh no, what's to do? It's a bad review. Just to take our minds off misery and horror, let's look at the terror that is TripAdvisor. Hospitality staff in British tourist destinations say that since lockdown lifted, they've had to deal with increasingly impatient visitors and TripAdvisor warriors. Susan Briggs, director of North Yorkshire's Tourism Network, says that there are more bad-tempered customers who are more demanding and even abusive when they can't get a table in a restaurant or they have unrealistic expectations of service. And workers have even launched a Be Kind campaign to remind people that they are holidaymakers and not Roman emperors. What has happened? Has a year of enforced isolation made us cruel and demanding? And why do we have to rate everything anyway, from the delivery guy to that Amazon order for coffee filters? Marie LeCant, why are people behaving like this now? Has, has lockdown made us regress into spoiled teenagerdom? I'm not really sure, to be honest, because it's not something I've personally felt. But I, I wonder if it's, yeah, because, you know, we've just been stuck in a cage effectively for most of the, the last 18 months. So there's maybe... Maybe that, maybe partly we're just so desperate to be doing things that we just want to do things all the time and the frustration um, is, you know, easier to kick in. Um, and maybe we've kind of forgotten how to behave as well. Like, it, it is true that I remember when I first started going out again, when it was allowed, I was so angry at people who walk slowly, but genuinely just a pure sort of like fury in in my body cursing through my, going through my veins. So I think it may just be that we've forgotten how to behave in a society. Are you a uh, are you a review lever, good and bad? Do you can consider it your democratic duty to participate by giving star ratings to, you know, the Uber Eats guy and uh, you know the car hire company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, ad infinitum. I never leave reviews uh, and uh, and anything ever. I, I I refuse entirely to engage in the review. I don't yeah, into like you know I'm, I'm not falling in the pocket of big review. Is what I'm saying. Well, as as a paid journalist, I, I guess you're kind of looking at it going, why am I writing this for free? <laughs> to generate value for Deliveroo and generate value for Amazon. You know, I'm supposed to get paid by the word for this stuff. Exactly. I believe you have stories about weaponizing Google reviews against bad customers, though. <laughs> Would you like to share them with the um, listeners? Yes, I do. So I had, so my mum's a tailor um, and she's got her own little shop. And she called me one day and she was like, I wanted to get your advice on something. Um, I realized, because she, she's not, like, my mum's not very online. And she was like, I've realized that some people have been leaving me bad reviews on Google and she's like, and I can remember there's only about two or three, but she was like, you know, but I, I can remember the customers as well. And they completely sort of, you know, misdescribed the situation and that was really unfair and stuff. And anyway, I replied to them, could you have a look and tell me if I went too far? Obviously, 
terrifying thing to receive from your mum. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, so I went to look and she was just so rude. She was just like, I think my favourite one, there were several, I can't remember them all. My favourite was this guy had complained about something I think had taken too long. Oh, no, I think like, it, you know, he complained that changing his trousers, helm or something was too expensive. And she replied saying that she should <laughs> she, she should have made him pay extra because she'd had to work uh, while smothered by the uh, smell of cheap cologne. Um, <laughs> you cannot say that, mum. That is not something you can do as a small business. But so many of them were just so rude. And, you know, saying, you know, well, you know, next time, please wash your clothes before bringing them to me because I always notice. But yes, I was just had to be, I'm so sorry, mum the way the internet works they're allowed to be really rude about you but you can't really be rude back um so she has stopped now which in a way makes me a bit sad i quite like the idea of actually my mum building a reputation for you know just saying if you come in here you have to be nice otherwise she will destroy you online it's not like a kind of tailoring version of the soup nazi from seinfeld you know you go there for the (laughs) abuse Yes, I mean, the, the American ethic of demanding good service can be somewhat terrifying. Uh, you know, my, my in-laws have scared the hell out of me with what they've they've required. Is Britain getting too much that way, do you think, if we're looking at people returning from their lockdown to behave like uh, in diva fashion at some poor B&B in Newquay? I mean, I think the difference is that Americans would probably say to their face if they were unhappy with the service, like I know my mom certainly would. Um, but um, I feel like it's very British to like kind of be seething internally when the service is bad, but then just to go online later and then like kind of let it rip in terms of um, just being upset. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe. I think the key difference with Americans kind of being that we just, you know, we're we expect a lot of good service and therefore have servers kind of popping up every two minutes to see if your meal is fine. But then there's that whole tipping culture as well. I don't know. I would, I have to say that, I mean, I I always found Britain to be kind of a nice middle ground, not quite continental Europe where you have to like desperately try to flag someone, but not so incessant like the Americans that they're just kind of showing up repeatedly. So I I hope they don't, but I don't know. Sounds like they are. Are you yourself a, a TripAdvisor review lever, an Amazon review writer, a uh, Uber Eats marker out of five? No, I am not, though. I am a, like a massive reader of all those things. So I like to, like even just, you know, earlier today, like if, if I'm reading, like if, I, if I'm going to order something off of Amazon, I will take the time to like, just like really study the reviews and make sure that they're legit um, to the best that I can. And kind of same thing with TripAdvisor. If I'm like traveling, I'll like often rely on on reviews or like even like weirdly like other things like Instagram to kind of sense like, is this restaurant worth going to and stuff like that. But, you know, I think when it comes like what I've, I try to take the really bad reviews with a grain of salt, though, because I think like what I've come to like understand, and this is even with my own behavior, more with things like Airbnbs and Ubers and stuff like that, like, I never rate my, like, I, I'm a, I have a bad habit of, like, never really rating my Uber, like, Deliveroo, you know, order or whatever when the app prompts me to. But if something's gone wrong, like, you know, half the order's missing or, mm. like, the Uber driver, like, you know, passed three red lights or something ridiculous, then you feel really compelled to be like, this is shit and I'm going to tell the world that it was. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on a podcast. Um, this You've is cost bad. You've costed a star rating there with <laughs> Sorry, your bad uh, This is, yeah, that, like, this is, this is bad. I feel like people are compelled to be that way when things are extra, like, just bad or or just, you know, don't meet like kind of what they were expecting. Um, And maybe in a way the pandemic's like just caused that even further because people want to go back to like quote unquote normal and this isn't quite it yet. 
I'm such a pathetically cowardly people pleaser that I have to be... Uh, the guy has to basically punch me in the face to not get a five-star <laughs> review. I just look at it and think, what would it be like to be on the end of a four-star review instead of five? It, it, I realise I'm completely missing the point here. And I'm always like getting the 25% off you know, the delivery thing, and then I'll feel guilty, so I'll just tip the 25%. How do they know? They don't know what I'm doing. But these, these endless review, demands to review everything... I mean, we criticise the kind of Chinese social credit and surveillance and the Big Brother thing, but we are bombarded by, you know, did this set of three empty plastic bottles meet your expectations? I don't know, you know, what was I expecting from them? It is just as bad in its way, isn't it? The kind of consumer Big Brother operation. I mean, I'm hesitant to compare it to Chinese surveillance. (laughs) It's not quite that, but I think the key point is that it's optional and, and it almost invites, I feel like in the way that we've set it up, because you can choose when you're going to review something, it almost sets it up so that when people do review, by and large, it's going to be negative. Unless you're the type of person that's just so kind that every time you have a good experience, you just have to tell the world about it. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of a flawed setup in a way because you know, as I said, I, I personally, I've only time I've ever rated like an Uber ride as like a one or two star was when something awful happened um, or like a, you got car sick because of the driving or whatever. But like otherwise, I just never do it, and I feel like probably by and large for a lot of people, they just totally disregard it. Arthur, the, the true British way when inf- confronted with awful service and terrible food is to just say, no, it's fine, isn't it? And then maybe just steal some sachets of sugar in revenge. What, what, what's gone wrong with us that we're now being these kind of cruel and judgmental foot stampers? Well, it, it's the cowardice of anonymity, isn't it? Uh, so we, you know, we, we're very happy to stare at our feet and mumble something. But when you get online, you suddenly feel um, very, very empowered. So I guess that's what's going on. Do you uh, do you leave reviews yourself? Is it hard to leave a bad review of a lukewarm full English at some B and B when you've actually been sleeping on the ground in Helmand? <laughs> well, uh, the one th- the thing where you have to review everything now, I find that a bit mysterious. I mean, there are some services which clearly uh, the the range of service level seems to matter, but there are plenty of things where it's just a transaction, and I don't really I, I don't really understand why I have to review it. But I, I've been I've been known to rev- if I've had a really terrible experience, I've been known to to uh, make sure that that is registered. Yes, I would have thought that with your connections, Arthur, you could have made something a bit worse happen to them than just a bad review. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not that sort of person, Andrew. I'm, I'm very <laughs> Listeners, please of course remember to review us on Apple Podcasts and hashtag Be Kind. That brings us to the end of this week's bunker, and as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books, whatever that are taking our panelists' minds off the awful, awful outside world? Marie, how about you? What's your escape route this week? I have been watching Legends of Tomorrow, which is an exceptionally stupid uh, sci-fi show. I'm having a great time. This is DC, isn't it? So it is. It is. Who's in it, and why is it so great? Um, so it's really fun because obviously you've got all the big shows like The Flash and Supergirl, you know, Batwoman, etc. And sort of like, and, and they took all the secondary characters from all these shows and made them a team mm. um, and, and, and made a show out of that. So at first, I think the first season effectively was like sort of like US Doctor Who. So it's just, you know, kind of like a time ship and they go back in time fixing um, errors in the timeline. Um, and it was okay, but not great. But then something clearly happened in the second season where they just went, hang on we can just be very stupid if we want to. So one of my favourite scenes is when they they go back and just about prevent a massive telepathic gorilla from killing a young Barack Obama. Um, And it's just, yeah, they just have so much fun with it. Because they're like, you know, we're a time travel show. 
we can just be as preposterous as we want. That storyline sounds like a kind of Proud Boys, Let's Kill Hitler flip version. You know, the opposite. <laughs> Let's go and kill Barack Obama. No, exactly that. And, and it's just, I can't even think of like, that. there's so much stupid stuff. Like they leave behind a Furby by mistake after fighting some Vikings and then come <laughs> back a hundred years later to find out that the Vikings have started worshipping the Furby. Um, and the Furby has become their god. Um, and it, it is just tremendous. It's so fun. I can't recommend it enough. Sounds great. Well, Yasmin, um, Maria's watching the Aldi Avengers. What are you enjoying? So I just finished watching The Chair, which is this like great uh, new Netflix comedy drama. I don't know if you've seen it. Basically, like looks at free speech on campus, but like through the lens of this like low tier Ivy League English department. And yeah, it's starring Sandra Oh. It's very, very good. Yes, the, the titular Sandra Oh is the is, she's the first woman of color to be a chair of an English department, isn't she? Yeah. And has to navigate all the all the crusty old fellows. Uh, I, I I showed it to my mom and said you should watch this. This is right up your street. And she said, oh, so is she still an assassin? Is she still trying to be murdered by that woman? Is it? No, it's a different character entirely. Okay, I get it. So when does the assassin come in? She found it very hard to imagine that Sandra Oh was actually playing a different role. I mean, that you might be on, she might be onto something there because I feel like if they brought in Jodie Comer in like the second season that like it worlds collide it would just be great suddenly like they just want to <laughs> suddenly an assassin comes with like a million accents trying to kill an english professor and no one knows why there you go arthur how about you what's your escape read well i've just been on holiday so i had time to do a bit of reading and i've discovered my favorite book of all time which is is nothing original here it's the count of monte cristo which right is you know ridiculously long and uh probably needed a good editor, but I think things were different back then. But it is honestly the most gripping, amusing, brilliant book anyone will ever read. And everyone must get a copy and read it now. It's just so good. Well, the books could be enormously long in those days. There were fewer distractions like podcasts and things like that. Well, I think the, the author was literally paid by the word. So you can see what, what, what was happening there. That's what you want. Well, my escape route, uh, in the sad week uh, when uh, we lost the great reggae originator Lee Scratch Perry, by far the strangest and most original person in the in the music firmament, I've just dived back into Arcology, which is the three-CD collection of Lee Perry's finest works from his finest time in the mid-'70s, and just astonished again at how wild and unreal and visionary this guy was basically the jamaican doctor who he was traveling into other dimensions using the power of his mind and um nothing has ever sounded like lee scratch perry and probably nothing ever will again so i've been playing an awful lot of that and um remembering the upsetter and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks for listening and thanks to marie lacant thanks for having me thanks to yasmin sahan thank you We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, if you liked this edition, then why not forward it to three friends right now using the share button in your app, Sharing is Caring. And if you want to take the relationship to the next level, you can always back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast for early ad-free episodes, enticing merchandise, and much more. Supporters, of course, get a shout-out on the show, and here are some now. wishes from me to Simon G, Philip Mills, and Thomas Robel. It's a big thanks from me to Tim Smith, Eileen O'Brien, and Johannes Hoffman. Many thanks from me to Emma Wolford, Chris Wheeler, and Anne Jane. And finally, best wishes from me to Andrew Myers, Alexander Faithful, and Nim Chimpsky. Chimpsky's Law Replies. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell, Marie LeConte, 
and Yasmin Saran. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.